But it's lovely to see you at the Lender Cybership School. I am thrilled that tonight um, John Wyatt is with us. Uh, John is a professor of neonatal medicine and ethics uh, at University College Hospital. And um, I have had a great privilege to meet him first about 15 years ago, him and his wife Celia, um, when I was working at All Souls Langham Place. They've been part of that church uh, for quite some time. Would you give a very warm welcome as John comes up to speak to us? Now, John, before I actually properly hand over to you, I'm just going to ask you a few questions, if sure. I may. Um, first of all, I guess the most important question, just tell us a little about how you came to be a follower of Jesus. Yes, thanks. Uh, it's great to be here. I, I was brought up in a Christian home in Manchester, north of England. Um, but I must say, as an adolescent, I was deeply confused, and I thought I was being brainwashed by my parents. And at last, I had the chance to get away from home, went to university in Oxford, and uh, that was really a a spiritual crisis for me, and um, it was really in my first year at university that I met some Christian people who had a huge influence on me, and and really my my faith came alive at that point, and for me it was really important, I was doing science, I was studying physics, it was really important for me that um, I was able to know that the Christian faith was intellectually credible, that, that if I was going to be a research scientist, this was something I could really trust intellectually. And so what I found, rather to my surprise, was that it was both it was intellectually credible, and at the same time, uh, I, I was aware of, of the reality of the Lord Jesus in, his life, in my life and of forgiveness and so on. So that's where I traced my Christian uh, origins to. And that time in university, was it, was it a sort of sudden moment? Was it going along to a series of talks? What was it that, that happened particularly to, to help yeah, you with it that? Yeah, it was a process. Uh, it was a process of wrestling and trying to sort of get away from the influence of my parents, which felt a bit claustrophobic, and trying to think for myself and test. So it was a process, I think, going on over um, probably six or eight weeks, and then finally a sort of a growing recognition that actually this was true, and I can remember one particular time of walking, I was at a conference and, and walking just out into the open and just praying and, and saying, I want to commit my life to you. I don't know what it means, but I want to serve you. And, and I can look back now, and it's 47 years, something like that, 48 years, and I can see actually in his grace, God honored that. Um, and, and in his grace, he has been in my life. He has been guiding me ever since. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, I, I know you came to London. Uh, you went to All Souls Langham Place back then as a, what were you, 21-year-old or something like that? Was that right? That's, that's right. I was 20. I, yeah. So shortly after my Christian faith came alive, I had this very strong conviction that God was calling me to change from physics to study medicine and that medicine was a way of caring for the people and, and being involved with the people that, uh, that God cared about and using the science I was good at uh, in, in the medicine. So that meant I had to leave Oxford. I, had to, I came down to London and started uh, in, in the University of London at St. Thomas's Medical School. Now, one of um, the, my heroes that I often talk about is John Stott, um, who was the, the rector and then rector emeritus at All Souls Langham Place. Uh, I know for you, he was your mentor from early 20s. Just tell us a little bit about his influence in your life. Yeah, so I started going to All Souls Church, I have to say, not because of the great biblical preaching and all that, because they had an orchestra and I played the trumpet. 
and I was looking for somewhere there, and um, the All Souls Orchestra had just started. This, this very long-haired guy, Rasputin figure with a huge beard, had, a, had appeared, and he was Noel Tradinic. It's very hard to imagine now, 40 years long, but, and he was starting an orchestra. But I, I started going to All Souls Church, and I saw John Sontot out there on the pulpit, and I'd hardly had a sort of exchange a word or two with him. He was a very sort of distant figure. And then after I'd been there about two or three years, as I remember, I got this message, would you like to come and have a cup of coffee with me in the rectory? And I was thinking, good grief, what's happened? You know, it's like being asked to see in the headmaster's study. You know, I must have been found guilty of some terrible heresy. And to my utter amazement, he said, um, he solemnly offered me a cup of coffee and a digestive biscuit in his little bachelor pad. And, and then he said, you know, how can I pray for you? And what are you reading at the moment? And would you like to come bird watching with me? And he was intentionally sort of... <laughs> setting up a, a relationship. And actually, we walked together. He became my spiritual father, as he was to so many others. And uh, we walked together for 45 years. And, and, you know, when we started, he was at the absolute peak of his sort of... He was an, a, a global Christian superstar, you know, starting the Lausanne movement, meeting up with Billy Graham, writing books on at the cross of Christ and Romans and all that kind of stuff. And in the end, he was very, very struck down by disease, and I was trying to care for him and look after him, and, and he was saying, pray, pray for me, John, pray that I might die well. So he had a huge influence on my life, and, and to be honest, humanly speaking, the very fact that I'm here doing what I'm doing now is because of him. It's because of what he modeled, what I saw in his life, the vision he gave me, of serving Christ in medicine. Tell us a, a little bit about that in terms of you sort of increasingly got into ethical questions, as it were, just to sort of speak something of, of that. Yeah, so I, I went into pediatrics and then uh, the kind of medicine called neonatology, which is the care of newborn babies. And I went into that because I love children and it was a very interesting and, and rapidly developing area of medicine. And then I realized I was in the midst of a huge ethical maelstrom. There were huge ethical questions coming and I was in the midst of it and trying to wrestle with these issues. And so I, increasingly I got involved in these ethical debates about technology, at the beginning of life, abortion, and other, and other uh, kind of ethical... I just felt this had my name written on it. I just, I had, if I was going to be faithful to Christ in this area, I had to try and grapple with these difficult issues and work out, as a Christian, how we should respond to it. Thank you. Um... Now, obviously, you're going to speak more about that. As a couple, you're married to Celia. Just, is this something, a passion of yours together? Yes. Yeah, so um, Celia uh, was a nurse. She trained as a nurse, then was a full-time mother. But then she was herself very, very exercised about the issue of abortion. And that led to her starting to volunteer with a new crisis pregnancy center that had just started in Islington, near where we live. And eventually she became the chief executive and uh, built up this crisis pregnancy center called Choices, which I'm going to talk a little bit about later on, uh, as a Christian witness in, on the Caledonian Road. And um, her usual line is, oh yes, my husband, he goes around and talks about ethics. I actually do it. Um, and uh, you, you're, as, as the title says out there, you're going to be speaking to us a, a little bit about the faith, uh, faith at the beginning and the end of life. Um, I know the last time we bumped into each other was about a year ago at some sort of rather highbrow um, <laughs> dinner party discussing artificial intelligence. Just tell us a little bit about how you've been thinking about that kind of stuff. Yeah, so 
One of the big things you realize as you go into medical ethics is that it asks the question time and time again, what does it mean to be human? And as technology advances, it raises that question time and time again with new twists. And I've come to the conclusion that artificial intelligence and robotics is the next big challenge which is coming. Um, and it's uh, uh, going to raise the question again, what does it mean to be human when we're surrounded by machines that can simulate humanity, that can simulate every aspect of being human? So at the moment, I've been part of a research project at the Faraday Institute in Cambridge, wrestling with some of those ethical and theological issues. And uh, I value your prayers. I'm trying to write at the moment, write a book about what it means to be human in an age of intelligent machines. Amazing. It is such a privilege to have you here. Thank you for coming. Um, John has written some amazing books already. Uh, he'll do his uh, one on what it means to be human shortly as well. But these are available for sale at the, at the back at the end if you'd like to buy them. But can I pray for you, John? And then I'll hand over to you. Heavenly Father, thank you for the call that you have had on John's life. Uh, thank you for his passion to connect his faith to all of life. And Lord God, we pray for him now that you would... Um, empower him by your spirit and that you would use him to be such a blessing to us as we think about these issues. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Great. Thanks very much, Joe. So, this is going to be a test of your eyesight, I can see. <laughs> so, I think what I'll do is I'll, um, I'll email the text of the slides. So, if you find it difficult to read the slides, um, it'll, be, it'll be available later on, um, the text of the slides, I'll make them available. Um, so, as you've heard, I'm a baby doctor, that's how I spent most of my uh, life working, working in a big intensive care unit uh, for babies, uh, some of them full-term babies, big babies but with very major medical problems, some of them incredibly tiny babies like this one in an intensive care unit, being kept alive. And the smallest babies we care for go down to 22 or 23 weeks gestation out of a normal 40 weeks or nine months. And at that stage, a baby might weigh 500 grams and literally fits on the palm of my hand. And we invest a huge amount of resources in caring for these babies. Uh, it's a very technologically sophisticated kind of medicine. Uh, it costs something like £1,500 per baby per day to provide this kind of care. And the total cost of ensuring that a very premature baby will survive can be as much as £100,000. All paid for by the NHS, free at the point of need. Uh, it's a big intensive care unit. We have something like 20 doctors, 80, 90 specialist nurses, um, other specialties, all dedicated to try and ensure the survival of these tiny babies. So clearly we as a society are saying that these babies are valuable, that they're worth something, that, that they are members of our community, they deserve the best. Actually that's my hand and uh, one of the babies on the baby unit, just to give you an idea of scale. But one of the huge ethical issues, my particular area of academic involvement has been in brain injury in newborn babies. And as our scanning techniques improved, we were able to pick up different kinds of brain injury. But then the question is, what should we do? If we know that a baby is severely brain damaged, how do we use this information? Is it ever right to switch off the life support machinery and allow a baby to die? 
And who should make these kind of decisions? Is this a matter for the law courts? Is it a matter for doctors? Is it a matter for parents? And um, so, so I increasingly realized there were all these kind of ethical issues as I was wrestling with them, trying to think, how as a Christian can we think about these things? Uh, feeling that God had called me into medicine, he'd called me into pediatrics, he'd put me in this, in this hospital, but how on earth do we build a bridge between the world of the Christian faith and this very sophisticated, technologically complicated world of medicine. And then it gets even worse and more confusing because just one floor away from the intensive care unit where I spent many years working, I've now retired from the NHS, but for many years I I was there, just one floor away is the fetal medicine unit. And here, pregnant women from a large area of London and the southeast of England are referred if an abnormality of the unborn baby, the fetus, is picked up. And again, very technologically sophisticated. This is an antenatal ultrasound scan. This is amniocentesis, when the fluid is taken from around the baby and analyzed. And these are the chromosomes from an unborn baby. Uh, It's probably too small to see, but uh, we know that she's a little girl because she has two X chromosomes here on the bottom right. If it was a little boy, there'd be an XY. But there's an additional 21 chromosome. And so this means that the baby is going to develop Down syndrome. Uh, We don't know from the chromosomes how severe it's going to be. It could be very severe and life-threatening. It could be relatively minor. But we do know that every child with Down syndrome is going to have some kind of significant learning difficulties, behavioral problems of some kind. And in the UK, every time this diagnosis is made before birth, the woman will be offered an abortion. And uh, I wonder if you know in the UK at present what percentage of women will choose to have an abortion if this particular pattern is diagnosed before birth. Does anybody... Want to guess or know what the figure is? It is, it's about 90%, 91%, 92% of women will choose to have an abortion if uh, Down syndrome is diagnosed before birth. What makes it even more troubling is that because the amniocentesis procedure itself carries the risk of causing a miscarriage and therefore the death of the baby, you can calculate for every one baby who is diagnosed with Down syndrome, there's a risk that another healthy baby will die purely as a result of the testing procedure. So here we seem to be saying it's more important to risk the lives of healthy babies before birth so that uh, Down syndrome can be identified and the option of an abortion given. And also because the way the law operates, and most people are completely unaware of this, but the law in the UK allows an abortion to be carried out at any stage in the uh, pregnancy all the way up to term if there is a medical condition such as Down syndrome. And although the numbers are small, in my own hospital, UCH, on a regular basis, when abnormalities, including Down syndrome, are picked up later on in pregnancy, abortions will be carried out at 26 weeks, 28 weeks, 30 weeks, 32 weeks, even 36 weeks. And in many times in my career... I've been called up from the neonatal unit where we're struggling to save some tiny little babies to go up one floor to the fetal medicine unit to speak to a mother who's considering having an abortion 
and she's asked to speak to a pediatrician, and the baby in her womb is considerably bigger and tougher and stronger than some of the babies we're struggling to save one floor down. And then you say to yourself, how is it possible in one hospital and in one NHS for these apparently contradictory activities to be going on? And that question is itself a very interesting and important question. How is it possible? I think the philosophical answer to that question is that we live in what philosophers call a pluralistic society. In other words, we live in a society where there are fundamentally conflicting views and understandings about the value of life, about what it means to have a good life. And because the dear old auntie NHS is trying desperately to respond to the different and conflicting views within the population, then you end up with these extraordinary things where on the one hand you're desperately trying to save lives and in the next ward uh, equivalent lives are being destroyed. If you look, going back to Down syndrome, and again it's a very small slide I'm afraid, but the blue line on the, on the horizontal axis is time starting 1990 going up to 2006. And the blue line is the total number of babies who diagnosed with Down syndrome. And that's going up, as you can see, with time. And the reason for that is the number of older women who are mothers is increasing. And because Down syndrome, the incidence of Down syndrome increases with maternal age, that's the reason the total number of babies who are with Down syndrome is going up. And the green line is the actual number of babies who are born with Down syndrome. So the difference between those two lines are the numbers of babies who are aborted. Those are the missing children who ought to be in our society, but who have been destroyed before birth. And as you may have heard, there's a sort of campaign by people with Down syndrome, don't screen us out. Not surprisingly, many dis people with disabilities see this whole thing, this screening before birth, as a kind of search and destroy process, which is trying to eradicate people like them. It's the way for the normal majority, the quotes normal majority, to try to get rid of people who don't fit, people who aren't like them. They see it as a form of discrimination against them. And it's interesting to see how the arguments about abortion have changed over the last 50 years since abortion was first legalized in 1967. At the time of the Abortion Act in 1967, the primary arguments about abortion was that this was an extreme measure, an act of compassion, which should only be required in extreme circumstances. But then, with the rise of uh, feminism and women's liberation, the whole argument changes, and, and then increasingly the argument is one based on liberation, that, that abortion is a right that every woman has to be free from patriarchy and so on. But it's interesting how the argument has changed again, and most recently, the, the communist arguments is that actually is an argument based on social resp responsibility. It's irresponsible to bring a child into the world who is unwanted, a child who is, has a disability. And so the argument is, is really based on social responsibility. So again, you won't be able to see the statistics, but um, the total number of abortions in England and Wales 2017 was approaching 200,000, just under. 
Compare that with about 700,000 live births. So approximately one in four, between one in four and one in five pregnancies in the UK will end in an abortion. And the statistics suggest that if, of women in their, uh, if you look at across their entire reproductive lifetime, on average, one woman in three will have an abortion in her lifetime. And of course, for every woman, there's a man involved as well. And yet, this is a topic that we can't talk about in modern society. We can talk about things like child abuse, we can talk about sex and orgasms, we can talk about anything except we can't talk about abortion. It's like there's a huge silence. Uh, but this topic is, is everywhere. But you know, it's not just out there in society. No, it's in here, in this room. I mean, I don't know anything about virtually all of you, but I can guarantee that there are many people here who've been personally touched by abortion. Uh, and that's men as well as women. Um, and yet it's like a silent wound. And you know, I think the first response when we talk about abortion is that we should talk about this not with rhetoric or um, judgment or harshness in our voices. We should talk about it with tears in our eyes. Because above all, this is, this is a deep, deep wound which affects so many people in our society. Um, and I'm, I'm saying this not to make people feel uncomfortable, but just to say that this is a, this is a deeply important subject which, which touches so many of us uh, and here within the church. And, and you know, to be honest, it's something which causes me deep concern because what right do we have as Christian people to go out into secular society and say, we know what the answer is to social problems. We know that if you follow Christ, we can be totally honest. We can, be, we can be live in the light with one another. We can find forgiveness when actually we can't deal with this topic within the Christian church. And it's nothing just about this church. It's across the whole of, the, of all the denominations across our land. And, and I and others feel that until we as a Christian community can start to address this issue and start to learn to, be, to walk in the light with one another and to discover the forgiveness, um, uh, then what right have we to go out into secular society? And yet this topic is, is associated with so much shame. And, you know, I've come to the conclusion that the shame issues, it's often said that... Modern UK society is a low-shame society. There are other societies like Saudi Arabia and other uh, countries around the world where shame is very high. But it's said that the UK is a low-shame society. But you know what? I've come to the conclusion the Christian community is a high-shame uh, society. And if you're going to talk about your abortion, for goodness sake, don't mention it at church. You can go and talk to your GP. You can go and talk to a counsellor. But the last place ever to talk about this stuff is in church because of the shame. So these are painful and, and real things. And our, our first response, I think, again, is not to cast judgment or criticism. It's just to recognize that this is something which touches so many of us. There's a, a, a move to, to decriminalize abortion completely. There are uh, mainly 
this is coming from a sort of radical feminist who's saying they want to strip away entirely all legal controls of abortion and that women should be free to do with their bodies whatever they like at any stage in pregnancy. They should be able to get drugs off the internet. They should be able to have an abortion at home. They don't need to have any doctors involved. They don't need to have any, any legal sanctions. And uh, there's probably going to be quite a significant um, argument in Parliament later on in this year if we manage to survive Brexit that um, some of these other issues are likely to surface later on in the year as to whether or not all legal controls of abortion should be stripped away. If you think that's bad, it's actually going to get much worse, and that's because of technology. So it, it, it turns out that uh, in, during pregnancy, in a completely normal pregnancy, a small amount of fetal DNA, the genetic material of the fetus, is circulating in the mother's bloodstream. This seems to be a normal biological phenomenon. But it's now possible to do a blood test in a pregnant woman, extract the DNA from the fetus, and then subject it to very detailed genetic analysis. And that basically means that it's possible to get a readout of the unborn baby's DNA just by doing a blood test during pregnancy. At the moment, this is a research tool, but it's likely to become part of standard NHS practice in the next five years or so. And so just fast forward five or ten years, and you or your wife or your daughter is pregnant, and they're very, very happy, and they go along to the GP, and they refer to the clinic, and they say, we'd just like to do a blood test, check everything's all right. And you go back in two weeks' time, they say, well... We've got good news for you. Um, you're having a little girl, congratulations. But unfortunately, the DNA shows that there's a 60 to 70% chance that she's going to develop breast or ovarian cancer before the age of 50. There's an increased risk of type 2 diabetes, and we're also worried about early onset Alzheimer's disease. Now, do you think it would be responsible for you to bring this child into the world? Or do you think it would be better to have an abortion? and um, have another chance for a healthy child. And so you can just see the kind of incredibly complicated challenges that, that pregnant women are going to have to face because of this um, sophisticated genetic information which is going to become available. And as someone put it, it's almost like we're being given godlike knowledge. I mean, how would it be possible? Only God himself would know how an unborn baby was likely to die the trouble is that godlike knowledge leads to godlike responsibility. And the question is, how can we as human beings cope with the responsibility? I actually believe that there's a very strong Christian argument to say we don't want to have that kind of genetic testing. You don't have to have it, you're not forced to have it, and you can just say, actually, I don't want to know. I believe in the way that God has created our humanity is that we're designed to meet our newborn baby almost like a, a stranger. You don't know anything about them. And then you fall in love with them because they're so little and cuddly and lovely. And, you just, and so as a parent, you fall in love with your newborn baby. And then over the next 18 years, you discover all their revolting and unpleasant genetic characteristics. <laughs> but by then it's too late because you've fallen in love with them. So we first we meet our child and then we discover about them. What the genetic testing does before birth is it turns it on its head. We discover a whole lot about our child before we've met them. And I think arguably that's the wrong way around. We're designed to meet our children first and then 
learn about them. So, those are issues at the beginning of life. Just very briefly, there are huge issues at the end of life to do with euthanasia. This is a businessman called Jeff Spector. He called all his friends and family together. He, um, they had a meal together. And then at the meal, he announced that the following day, he was going to take the trip to the Dignitas Clinic in Switzerland, and he was going to take his own life. And the reason was he'd been diagnosed with a, a tumor which was pressing on his spine. It was inoperable, and the doctors had told him that he was going to become paralyzed from the waist downwards. And Jeff Spector said, no, that's not me. I refuse to go that way. I'd much prefer to kill myself. And he did. He went uh, to the clinic, and he died the following day after this photograph had take, was taken. And... Um, the newspapers, by and large, were very supportive and said, what a wonderful thing. You know, he didn't want to be a burden to anybody. He didn't want to depend on any other people. He wanted to live his own life his way. And why on earth did he have to go to Switzerland? Why couldn't he have been killed here in the UK? And, and so these kind of stories, pressurizing, uh, saying, let's change the law to legalize assisted suicide and various forms of medical killing here in the UK... This was another case, a tragic case, Daniel James. He was a very promising young rugby player. He played for the Junior England team. He was involved in a rugby accident, fractured his neck, cervical spine, became paralyzed from the shoulders downwards. He became deeply depressed. He was a very sporty uh, young man. And then he said to his parents, look, if you really love me, you'll help me to kill myself. And they tried to argue him out of it, but in the end, he persuaded them, and they took him to Switzerland, and he took a lethal dose and killed him. And he was killed. And the, um, again, the newspapers were very supportive, and they said, what loving parents. They weren't selfish. They didn't put their own wish first. They wanted to do what was best for their son. And again, why on earth did he have to go to Switzerland? Why couldn't this be made available here in the UK? In Holland, where euthanasia is now one of the major ways in which people die, it's completely routine for people to be killed with cancer and things like that, usually by a lethal injection from the doctor. Now, uh, the, the idea is to try and extend euthanasia to other categories, people with psychiatric disorders, uh, young children under the age of 12, um, people with dementia, and even, it's been suggested, people who are older people who are just, quotes tired of life. If they've decided they don't want to carry on living anymore, well, why shouldn't the doctor give them a lethal injection so they don't become a burden to other people? Uh, and it seems like a wave of medical killing is spreading across the world. At the moment, the UK is one of the places which is standing out against it. We had a big debate in Parliament in 2015 um, MPs voted two to one against changing the law to allow medical killing here. But there's constant pressure to try to change the law. And again, I think it's likely that this is going to be an issue again in our parliament in the foreseeable future. Um, behind all this is the specter of Alzheimer's disease or dementia. And the uh, statistics about dementia are really quite uh, chilling. Um, on the left, uh, the number of people diagrammatically t in 2012 in the UK with Alzheimer's disease. The middle is 2021. 
So on the left, 800,000, 2021, a million. On the right, 1.7 million, and that's in 2051. And that's, again, because dementia is an age-related illness. And so people are saying, how on earth as a society are we going to cope with so many people with Alzheimer's disease? How can we surely... Um, we should consider some form of euthanasia. If people do, it would be better to kill people, particularly if they've asked for that to happen before they develop Alzheimer's disease. And uh, Mary Warnock, who's a very well-known medical ethicist, uh, says, if you're demented, you're wasting people's lives, your family's lives, you're wasting the resources of the NHS. I'm absolutely fully in agreement with your argument that if pain is insufferable, then someone should be given help to die. But I feel there's a wider argument that if somebody absolutely desperately wants to die because they're a burden to their family or the state, then I think they too should be allowed to die, by which she means they ought to be killed, given a lethal dose of uh, poison. But there's a deeper question behind all this for Christian people, and then um, what does it mean to die well uh, as a Christian? If you ask people how they would like to die, the commonest answer you'll get is, I want to die in my bed, at home, I want to die in my sleep, I don't want any kind of warning, I don't want any kind of premonition, I don't want any kind of awareness, I just want to go out like a light. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Just, come gone. I can see some people nodding. In fact, most people don't die like that. Most people die like on these two photographs you can't see. But on the one on the left is failed cardiopulmonary resuscitation in hospital, which is a terrible way to die with people jumping up and down on your chest, giving you electric shocks, desperately trying to resuscitate, start your heart. Or on the right in an intensive care unit with tubes coming out of every orifice, surrounded by machinery and anonymous professionals, so death has become very medicalized. And um, I, I wrote a book, the most, my, my most recent book is called Dying Well, and there's some copies at the back, which uh, look at this question in more detail. What does it mean as a Christian to, to learn to die well? So those are some age-old challenges about the taking of human life, the destruction of human life. Uh, but there are new challenges as well, and I haven't time to go into detail now. We are going to have a chance for Q&A, and if there are particular issues you'd like to discuss, I'd be delighted to discuss in more detail. But the new ethical challenges are not about the destruction of human life, the taking of human life. They're about the making of human life, the shaping of human life, and the faking of human life. It's a bit slick, I'm afraid. So making human life means the reproductive technology, new ways of making babies. The shaping of human life is the manipulation of humanity using things like smart drugs, wires in brains, and other things like that. And then there's the faking of human life, and that's artificial intelligence and the ability to simulate what it means to be human. And reproductive technology is changing the way we think of parenthood. Um, when I was a medical student, which is an awful long time ago in the 1970s, I went to a lecture on reproduction. Human reproduction sounded very interesting. Took me notepad. What I learned was that a man and a woman had sexual intercourse and nine months later out popped a baby. So I wrote it all down very carefully in my notepad. <laughs> I had I actually worked that bit out, mainly from the toilets at our school. Um, but if you were to go to a lecture like that today, it would be rather different 
what you would learn is that you need, there are four things you need to make a baby. You need a source of eggs. You need a source of sperm. You need a uterus or a womb. And you need someone to care for the baby. And so those four things you can, can come from different sources. And so the, the various permutations and combinations are very significant. You can have egg donation, sperm donation, embryo donation, surrogate pregnancy, and so on. And so the whole nature of how we make babies is changed and has become extremely confusing and complicated. And so it's perfectly possible for a gay couple, this is Elton John and his male partner, um, having a child by surrogate pregnancy. Um, it's even there's a, a case where a young lady tragically was dying of cancer, and before she died, she had her eggs harvested, and she made the legal request for her mother to be implanted with her embryos. And it went to the courts, but eventually the courts agreed, and this, her mother became pregnant with her daughter's eggs. And so, at one and the same time, this woman was both the mother and the grandmother of the babies she was carrying in her womb. And again, it just shows you the sort of complexities and confusions which technology is creating. And some people think that uh, in the future, having babies in test tubes and in laboratories is going to be the normal and sophisticated way to have... I mean, that old-fashioned way about making love, it's so 20th century, you know? I mean, really, we've moved beyond that now. The way to have babies is to do it in a sophisticated, controlled way. And a well-known lawyer in the States said, within the next 20 to 40 years, it is likely that the majority of babies in developed countries will be conceived in IVF clinics, and they'll have whole genome sequencing as embryos before being selected for transfer to a womb. So the idea is that you could create 10, 20, 30, 40 embryos in the test tube. You submit them all to sophisticated genetic analysis, and then you select the most uh, promising embryos for your children, giving them the very best genetic potential. question of uh, embryo editing is something that's being discussed and, again, manipulating, changing the very DNA of human embryos. You may be aware there's been a lot of controversy about that recently, about a case in China. And so I think you can see behind this, you can see various social forces. On the one hand, there is consumerism that says, I want. There is moral relativism that says, well, why not? And then there's the technology that says, we can satisfy your dreams but it's going to cost you. And so these different forces are swirling together in our complex and secular society. And if you think that we can, as Christians, just give nice, slick, simple answers to these very, very complex, challenging issues, well then, I'm sorry. You know, I don't have any nice, slick, simple answers to you. I don't think there are any slick answers. But at least we can start to think about these things from a Christian perspective. And so now, for the rest of the time, I want to just focus in on a Christian thinking. How on earth do we think about this? And I think one of the most important principles is that Christian ethics starts with Christian anthropology. In other words, Christian ethics, which is about the way we're called to treat one another, starts with Christian anthropology, which means the way we are made. And that means it's about creation. It's about creation theology. 
And if I may say so, I think it's one of the great weaknesses of the evangelical church here in the UK in the 21st century and elsewhere across the world. And that is, we have a very strong doctrines about the fall and about the cross, about redemption. But actually, we have a pretty weak theology about creation. And we also have a very weak theology at the other end about the new heaven, new creation. And to caricature, the message of the gospel says... That is, that is preached, to caricature it, says all human beings are fallen, but by God's grace we can be saved and redeemed through Christ's death on the cross. And that's true, but it's only half true. Because you can't understand what it means to be fallen unless you really understand what it means to be created, how God made us in the first place. And you can't really understand redemption unless you understand what we are redeemed for which is new creation. And so we need to develop this this full-orbed understanding of what it means to be human. And what I've discovered is so much of it is to do with creation. Until we really understand the way that God has made us, we're not going to be able to respond to some of these challenges. So creation theology. Well, one of the things we all know is that God has made us in his image. Uh, In Genesis chapter 1, Um, when it comes to the rest of creation, God says, let there be light, let the earth bring forth uh, life and so on. But when it comes to human beings, it changes. And the language is different. It says, let us make human beings in our image. And reading that with Christian eyes, we see that that's the Holy Trinity. Let us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make human beings in like us in our image. And so human beings are godlike beings. And that's such an important thing which needs to be said in our secular society. You know, for modern people, they don't have any difficulty in, in believing that human beings are evil, that human beings are fallen. You only have to switch your television on. You only have to look on the internet about what's going on in Syria and what's going on around the world to believe that human beings are evil. What is much harder for modern secular people to believe, is that actually human beings are wonderful. Human beings are unique. Human beings are precious. And yet that's the message of creation. So in Christian thinking, human beings are not self-explanatory. You'll never understand what it means to be human by examining DNA with incredibly precision or by looking at brain mechanisms or studying anatomy textbooks. Why not? Because we are derivative. Our meaning is from outside ourselves. We're like a map that maps on to the very character and being of God himself. So human beings are not self-explanatory. The structure of our humanity, the things that are important to us, only make sense because we're made in God's image. And so our dignity, our significance, doesn't come from what we can do, and the fact we happen to have some extra cerebral cortex in our brains, we happen to be uh, creative or other things. No, our dignity, our significance comes from the stuff of our being in the way that God has created us to reflect his own character. And yet, human beings are wonderful, are unique, are glorious made in God's image, but also in the next chapter in Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, 
we learn that human beings are made out of dust. And you probably know that in Hebrew, the word for human, Adam, is derived from the Hebrew for ground, which is Adama. So literally, human beings are groundlings. And it's the same in English. Did you know that the word for human is derived from humus? Not the nice stuff you put on a piece of bread, <laughs> but the compost heap. That's what we are. We are human made out of the ground. And because we are made out of the dust, this means that God has designed us to be weak, to be fragile, to be vulnerable, to be dependent, and to use a philosophical term, to be contingent. This is actually part of our creation. Remember, this is absolutely nothing to do with the fall. The fall doesn't happen until Genesis chapter 3. This is Genesis chapter 2. This is design. God has chosen to make us out of dust and to make us fragile and vulnerable. Presumably, he could have made us powerful and dynamic beings. I mean, remember in, in uh, Isaiah, when he has this vision of the seraphim and of the cherubim, and they're singing praises of God, and the entire temple is shaking with the sound of their voices. Well, presumably, God could have made us like that. But instead, no, he chose to make us pathetic, fragile, vulnerable, and dependent. And you came into this world utterly and totally dependent on the love and care of others. And the very fact that you're sitting there and looking reasonably together tells me that when you were born, somebody cared for you. Somebody fed you. Somebody wiped your bottom. Somebody kept you warm because you could do absolutely nothing for yourself. And then we go through this phase of our life where we care for other people. And my wife and I, we've got three boys, and you know, they've now grown up and we've left home. But this period where people depend on us seems to go on for a long time because the phone rings, Dad, Dad, can you put a thousand pounds in my account, Dad? Dad, can I borrow the car for a month? So, so, so this period where other people seem to depend on us goes on for an awful long time. But you know, most of us are going to finish our lives utterly and totally dependent on the love and care of others. And this was brought home to me very powerfully when my mother, who was a lovely, vivacious Christian lady, was struck down by a horrible kind of dementia. And before our eyes, she was deteriorating and she became confused she was hallucinating she could do nothing for herself her body was contorted she was doubly incontinent she was having 24-hour nursing care and near the end I was visiting her and somebody thrust a yogurt pot and a teaspoon in my hand and I was saying open your mouth open your mouth here it comes open your mouth and then I suddenly had this flashback this was exactly what she used to do for me in fact, I could even remember her trying to feed me and her finger coming out and wiping my mouth. And now the tables were turned. And I remember thinking very clearly at that moment, you know, this is the way it was meant to be. I was learning more of what it meant to be a son and she was learning more of what it meant to be a mother because dependence is part of the story. Dependence is the way that God has created us. And, you know, I hear Christian people often, especially older Christian people, say something like, I just don't want to be a burden to anybody. 
I'm very happy to care for other people. I'm very happy to look after other people. But if I ever come to the point where I become a burden to other people and I need to be looked after, I'm going to say to God, thank you very much. I've had my life. It's time to go to heaven now. Goodbye. (laughs) And you know, if you ever hear somebody say that or if you're ever tempted to think it yourself, you must immediately say, you are wrong. You are intended to be a burden to me. And I am intended to be a burden to you. And that's why Paul says, bear one another's burdens. And so you will fulfill the law of Christ. And you know, I really believe that if we as a Christian community could really live out lives of mutual burdensomeness, of bearing one another's burdens, that would be such a witness in our society which prizes autonomy, which prizes independence, and I do it my way, and it's my life and my choice. But it's creation. God has designed us to be dependent. He's designed us to care for one another. Oh, sorry. Let's just see if I can make it. We just want to move it on over there. So dependence is not an alien, subhuman, undignified condition. No, it's part of the narrative. It's part of the way that God has made us. I often show this slide when I'm teaching medical students about uh, issues at the beginning of life. So and I say, top left-hand corner, this is what you looked like when you were born. Middle top, that's what you looked like at 28 weeks. Top right, that's what you looked like at 18 weeks, bottom left, that's what you look like at six weeks, that's what you, what you look like at three weeks, that's what you look like at three days. That's exactly what you look like. Is there any point as you go back into your own personal history in which you can say, actually, no, that's not me, that's, that's something else, that's just a blob? I don't think it is. I don't think at any stage you can go back, however far you go back, That was you. God saw you and knew you and loved you and was calling you by name, calling you into existence. And therefore, every being in the womb matters. And we are called to reach out with love and compassion to these vulnerable and fragile beings. But you know, the story doesn't stop there. It isn't as though God says, well now... I'm going to make you these sort of wonderful but incredibly fragile beings. You know, good luck with that. All the best, you know. But no, something far more amazing and bizarre and wonderful happens because the God of total power, the God of complete authority, decides to turn himself into one of these pathetic, fragile, carbon-based life forms. And he enters Mary's womb And he becomes fragile and vulnerable. And when he's born, he can do nothing for himself. And he needs to be cared for. And he needs to be looked after. And he needs to be washed. And he needs to have his bottom wiped. You know, we're so familiar with the story of Christmas that we've lost how utterly scandalous it is that the God of the universe turns himself into a pathetic baby who squits down his mother's back not some kind of cherub on a Christmas, Christmas card, but a real baby. And at the end of his life on the cross, the God of total power 
is stretched out on a cross and through parched lips, he says, I am thirsty. And he can do nothing for himself. He has become utterly and totally dependent. And yet, the Christian faith teaches us that even as a newborn baby, he is the, God, the second person of the Trinity upholding the universe by the word of his power. In other words, his dignity and his status is in no way touched by his dependence. And that's something we need to remember, and you need to remember, if I might say so. At some point in your life, you're likely to find yourself in a hospital bed, and you need to be cared for, and you need to be washed, and you need to have your bottom wiped. Just remember that your unique status and dignity as a beloved princess or prince of the Most High is in no way touched by your dependence. Because God has been there before. He has He has been with us. As someone put it, he was with us in the darkness of the womb as he will be with us in the darkness of the tomb. There's nothing you can go through in the whole stage of human existence which in some way God himself in the person of Jesus hasn't experienced. He entered into this experience of dependence and fragility. So our humanity is not a barrier which comes between us and God. I sometimes hear people saying, oh, I just wish I could be more spiritual and not so human. You know, that's wrong. God's plan for you is not to be less human. God's plan for you is to be fully human, like Jesus. There is no higher calling than to be fully human. So our humanity is the very means by which God is revealed. And you know, I've often looked at this photograph and tried to think about it spiritually, and I've said, you know, how do I think about this? Am I this little hand clinging on desperately, and God is the great big hand which is supporting me? Well, yes, that's very often how it feels. There I am, desperately clinging on for life. But you know, wonderfully and mysteriously, you can swing the photograph around, and the God of total power and authority chooses to make himself the little hand. He chooses to make himself vulnerable and dependent in order to teach us that there can be glory and dignity even in the most dependent, the most broken, the most fragile. So what does this mean for some of the issues I've been talking about? Well, first of all, I think it means that we've got to defend the preciousness and integrity of every human life. Why? Because this is the form in which God became flesh. Because Jesus was a fetus, every fetus is precious. Because Jesus was a baby, every baby is precious. Because Jesus was a dying person, every dying person is precious. Dependence, fragility, vulnerability, they're all part of the creation design. You know, even in the new creation, we will still be dependent. We will still be created. God's plan for us is not that we just do our own thing. We will discover our real reality of what we were intended to be, but ultimately independence. I think, therefore, we should be resisting the technological drive for autonomy, the technological drive to master our own humanity, to get control, to to leave behind, to do it my way. That's not 
the way to be fully human. That's not what God has in store for us. And sometimes, therefore, I think, as increasingly in the future, as technology offers us more and more, we're going to have to have the courage to say no. Yes, I could have that enhancement. Yes, I could have that, um, that new stuff. But actually, you know, perhaps it's okay to have that Mark I humanity. If old-fashioned humanity was good enough for Jesus, well, maybe it was good enough for me too. I think also in the spiritual battle, there's an enemy whose mission is to destroy, deface, and manipulate human beings. And I've come to the conclusion that the evil one hates human beings with a passion. In fact, I suspect the thing that the evil one hates most of all is the cross and the, and the implications and the story of the cross. But the thing the evil one hates second after the cross is human beings. Because every human being reminds him of the prince. Every human being reminds him of Jesus. And the evil one is dedicated to destroy human lives, to deface, to twist, to, to, to bring death. And, and we see a culture of death spreading into our society, and, and it's particularly coming through now through medicine, both through abortion at one end, through medical killing at the other. And then very briefly and finally, whenever as Christian people we say that something's wrong, we must immediately go on and say, and here is a better way. It's not good enough to just say it's wrong, it's bad, it's against God's will and so on. We've got to immediately say, here's a better way. And just very briefly, I just want to talk about a better way for abortion. This is baby Christopher. He had a genetic condition called Edwards syndrome, which is like Down syndrome, only far worse, and it's universally lethal. And Alan and Verity, his, friend, his parents, were good friends of ours at All Souls Church. This was their first baby, much longed for, and then they had this news that um, the baby had this uh, Edwards syndrome. And they had a huge pressure before birth to have an abortion. People said, what possible reason can there be to carry on if you know the baby's going to die? Why put yourself through it? Why put the baby through it? Surely the loving thing to do is to have an abortion. But after a lot of heart searching, Alan and Verity said, this is our baby that God has given us. We've got to love this baby. And little baby Christopher was born. He weighed about five pounds, 2.5 kilos. And to everyone's surprise, he didn't die straight away. And they used to bring him along to All Souls Church, where he used to become like a a mini celebrity. Everybody knew about baby Christopher, and everybody wanted to have a cuddle. And he used to get passed from arm to arm. And uh, he was a very quiet, placid baby, and he used to look up into your face. And everybody just wanted to love him. And in fact, he lived for seven months, much loved at All Souls. And then he got weaker and weaker, and he died at home. And there was a memorial service in the church, and over 400 people came to the memorial service to pay tribute to baby Christopher. And when he died, he was still five pounds. And one of Alan Verity's friends said, you know, Christopher couldn't grow but he helped other people to grow. And it was true. And I remember thinking at the time, you know, this is Christian ethics in practice. This is what it looks like to say that life is precious. To recognize that even baby Christopher was a God-like being, a being made in God's image, however much affected by genetics, uh, by a genetic condition. And he touched so many lives. So... My wife runs a crisis pregnancy centre, or did did do until very recently, uh, called Choices Islington. It's a Christian charity, and they reach out and offer um, support for women 
Women are referred by GPs. Sometimes they find them on the internet or through posters. And um, they have a shop front there on the Caledonian Road, uh, which is staffed every day. And uh, they provide counseling. They see uh, it's a very significant number of women. And thankfully, because of their work, uh, although they don't provide any pressure, they provide a safe space where people can find help. Um, a, a very significant number of children have actually been born as a result of the, the work of uh, Choices and other crisis pregnancy centers around the country. They provide support for women who are traumatized by previous abortions. And uh, they have a specialist abortion recovery program. And could I say, if there are people here and you've been touched by an abortion, man or woman, woman, can I please beg you to find specialist help uh, to be able to uh, find recovery and freedom from uh, this thing because in the past? Because uh, I know how transformative that can be for so many people. They provide Christian relationships and sexual health education in schools. They have a befriending service for single mothers who are unsupported to support them through the pregnancy and as a single parents. They have a boutique where they offer free baby clothes and equipment donated by the churches. So there's some of the donated baby equipment. They have a community mums group um, to support um, mums and so on. So here's an example of what practical, putting the ethics into practice are not campaigning, they're not involved with uh, rhetoric and debates and so on. They are simply showing practical Christ-like compassion and love and reaching out. And I regard this as a wonderful example of Christian compassion. There's a center in Wimbledon, apparently. It would be wonderful if more centers, you know, if some people are moved by this and you think maybe God is calling me to do something like this. It would be wonderful to see more centers like this showing practical Christian compassion. And at the end of life, I haven't time to talk about it, but basically the answer is not to say, oh, well, let's just kill people. The answer is palliative care. And Cicely Saunders, a wonderful Christian doctor, who said, you don't have to kill the patient in order to kill the pain. And she developed new and sophisticated ways of using pain control medicines. And she said, you matter because you are you, and you matter to the end of your life. Not only will we help you to die well, will help you to live before you die. And she realized that actually the last few days, weeks, months of life could actually turn out not just to be doom and gloom, but to be the most amazing opportunity and, and even a strange kind of adventure. And that's what I've written about that in my book, Right to Die and also Dying Well. So I've uh, I, I finished. We're going to have a chance for some uh, reflection and prayer together discussion maybe and then uh, if there are particular questions you can text them in uh, just to say that these are the three books which are at the back there's matters of life and death which really uh, if you're interested in some of the material I've been talking about it's all there in the book with a lot more detail and references right to die is particularly looking at the issues of euthanasia and assisted suicide and dying well is a book for Christian people who are facing the end of life or those of us who are relatives or carers and also just to say that I've recently launched a website called johnwyatt.com. I do have the sort of words of John Stott in the back of my head saying, Dear brother, if you ever do Christian ministry, make sure you are not promoting yourself. <laughs> but anyway, easy to remember. And so, again, there are, 
there are uh, resources there if you're interested that you can download some more. But thanks so much. It's been a privilege to share with you.